Welcome to the Rainmakers Podcast. This show is going to be an exploration on the world's best investors from past and present to see how exactly they made their returns. In this episode, we'll be going over how Donald Bren became the richest real estate investor in the United States from one single deal. We'll be going deep on who Bren was, how he invested in the deal, and what made the deal work so well. For context, Donald Bren is $8 billion richer in net worth than the second guy on the Forbes list for the top 25 real estate billionaires in 2023. Again, I want to emphasize, I know we're going to emphasize a lot of things in today's episode, but he did not do this from being a generalist like other investors that we covered in the past. The bulk of his $18 billion net worth came from this one single deal he made 40 years ago, where he had the ultimate patience to see it through. We will learn a lot in this episode, and before I hold you any longer, I want to give a quick shout out to two people. The author of the book, Transforming the Irvine Ranch by Michael Stockstill, for writing a great book that helped a lot with my research. I also want to give a quick shout out to my friend at TurtleBay underscore IO, who helped me with the research as well. Now, let's get on to the episode. Donald Bren became a billionaire through his skill of developing houses and his ambition of doing big deals. He parlayed his small development of a few houses in Newport Beach into striking a deal to build modern-day Mission Viejo. From this, he got back into the residential development business and later was part of the group that bought 75 acres that is now the Irvine Company. Here is how he did it. Donald Bren was born in 1932 to famed Hollywood producer Milton Bren, who helped make films like Free and Easy. Bren's father was also a real estate developer and helped develop parts of the Sunset Strip. Bren went to the University of Washington to be a competitive skier and then went to the Marine Corps for three years where he helped train other Marines to survive the winter cold. Bren had a knack for building things and was very meticulous about doing things right. A quote from a Fortune magazine article that profiles Bren gives a quick story from his friend in the article saying, In high school, we would take old cars and turn them into street hot rods. I would build one and it would run, but there would be a couple of screws left over, not Donald. He would spend hours in the garage going over every detail. Everything had to be perfect. He starts at A and ends up at Z. He goes right down the alphabet. By the time he finished with the Marines, he was 25 years old. That was from the 1990 profile. He made his first real estate development with a $10,000 loan from Bank of America, where he built a home in Newport Beach and sold it. He would continue doing this for four years until he would get one major life-changing opportunity, starting the Mission Viejo Company. Now here is some context. Around this time period, which was the early 60s, much of Southern California was not built up like it is today. The main driver of economic output at this time in Southern California was agriculture, where many of the places people now live in were used to grow oranges and other crops. That's why the name of the county is Orange County. I mentioned a while back on the first episode how big investors like Charlie Allen were buying real estate developments all across the country at this very time period. In the 50s and 60s, the American West was moving away from an agricultural economy to a more urban lifestyle where cities will be built. This is part of the reason why Walt Disney got to build Disneyland in Anaheim. He was converting acres upon acres of orange groves into theme parks. Bren was no different. 
when he was building homes, he was building it on land that was largely used for growing crops. He took his skills of being detail-oriented and began his development business to sell homes in the newly incorporated city of Newport Beach. But I do not want to underscore the enormity of the next venture he decided to get into. When he created the Mission Viejo Company, he convinced the owners of a 50,000-acre ranch, the O'Neill family, to sell him 10,000 acres in order to build a whole planned community. This meant that he was building a city. This was far different than the homes he built. And guys, he was only 29 years old. This isn't some educated investor who took on the opportunity because he did it before. Donald Brand was, was actually a lot more reminiscent of a young Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg, for example. Because it was so expensive to pursue, however, the companies that would build these communities would largely be big conglomerates, like oil companies who could diversify their profits into creating developments on acres of land. We will see throughout this episode that oil companies bidding on these projects will be a source of deal flow for many astute investors. But for the Mission Viejo company, it was actually the rejection of these very companies' bids which led to Bren getting the deal. Now here's some background on the Mission Viejo company. The O'Neill family could trace its roots back to their ranch to 1882 when the patriarch of the family, Richard O'Neill, would purchase two tracts of ranch land in Southern California. O'Neill tried his luck in the California gold rush and soon realized that it wouldn't pan out for him. After a quick stint as a butcher in San Francisco, his partner at the time, James Flood, would go on to found Wells Fargo Bank. By 1882, he got into the ranching business full-time and would purchase a Santa Margarita, Mission Viejo, and Tribuco ranches from Don Juan Forster. He purchased with Flood to buy the ranches where they paid $457,000 at this time. O'Neill would manage the ranch and would only own half of the ranch, with the other half being paid back to Flood as a mortgage he would owe over time. By 1906, he would finally pay off the other half and would own the whole ranch. O'Neill would die and would leave the ranch to his son Jerome O'Neill, and then Jerome would establish a trust for his family where they would eventually split the ownership of each ranch to half the family. But what had actually caused the split wasn't the family. It was due to the U.S. government during this time period. By World War II, the United States government needed a place to build a base for their Marines. By 1940, the O'Neills owned one of the biggest ranches in Southern California. They owned 200,000 acres which stretched from Southern Orange County to Northern San Diego County. In 1941, the Marine Corps would take most of the San Diego portion of the ranch and created Camp Pendleton. From the 200,000 acres, the O'Neills were left with 50,000 acres after the U.S. government would use the War Powers Act to take the land and condemn it. The U.S. government would pay $4,150,000 for this piece of land where half of the family would take it as their payment from the acres that they owned, with the O'Neills keeping the remaining 50,000 acres for themselves. Those 50,000 acres, however, were hard to build on, and the land was locked from Camp Pendleton taking up all the oceanfront property. But that wasn't the only problem. Jerome left the ranch in a banker's trust for his siblings after he passed away. Over the years, the managers of the trust tried every which way to sell the remaining land behind the family's back. Daisy O'Neill would stop these efforts and was known as a hero in her family for taking on the bankers. 
by the time her grandson, Tony Moisa, would take over the ranch, she warned him not to trust bankers and institutions with managing the ranch. It was this advice that led to Bren winning the deal. Tony got back from the army when companies had contacted him about developing the ranch in 1962. Some of the companies that would bid were Mackel Development Corporation, who was a known player and had experience in construction. Bren, on the other hand, was a total novice when it came to such a project. But the pitch he made to Moiso was that if he could convince his grandmother, Daisy, for him to win the deal, he would be able to teach Moiso the business and even make him a partner in the project. Being a novice and offering the family to learn how to build the development ultimately won Bren the deal. Bren knew his standing as a novice, much like other investors we mentioned in the past, and had convinced an attorney named Philip Riley to join him in bidding for the project. Riley had worked as an attorney in the planning commission for Santa Ana, so he got to see all the deals that were going on around him during this time. Once the deal closed, Bren had Riley recruit others to be on the team. The first person he brought was Jim Topfer, who worked in the same planning commission as Riley and was a civil engineer who had experience in architecture. Now that he formed the team, Bren called a meeting to his office where he called in Jim and Phil, and in Jim's oral history, he recalls the, this very meeting saying, I remember sitting in Bren's office October 23rd in 1963. And Riley, Bren, the first time we all met together in his office, and we all stared at each other. Bren looked at Riley and threw him the checkbook, as I recall. Riley threw me the checkbook, and he said, plan it. I threw it back at Riley, and I said, I think I need some help here. How many people have created a city? It was that real. So that's where it all began. So he said, he's talking about Riley right now. We're going to do it. And from then on, it became a matter of all the things that we could talk about here, of who we hired and what we did. So Bren knew the enormity of the task that he agreed to doing. He figured if he could hire the right people that had more experience with community developments, he can be a salesman while they figured it out. The problem was the experts he hired never built anything at this scale before. They were all on uncharted territory. Bren continued to build out more homes in Newport Beach to make his money, and while he struck a deal to buy 10,000 acres from the family, he essentially negotiated to do it as options. This meant he would first buy a few hundred acres that he can't afford, then build houses and other projects to then sell, which would then allow him to buy more land to develop and rinse and repeat. It just became like a cycle until you eventually take up all 10,000 acres. That was the plan. But his plan was also to move quickly, and instead of buying land to build on the ranch, he actually went about selling land he didn't want to build on himself outside the city so he could use the profits from that to start buying his own land. Jim later retells this in his oral history saying, Don said, we're going to build this whole thing ourselves, all the houses, maybe commercial, that'd be different, but we're going to build. I went to all these builders and I said, Don, do you want to come out here and buy some property? And Don said, Jim, it's kind of far out there. It's 12 miles out. I think it's too early. To which Jim replies, but this is a great opportunity. We're going to have what we hope will be a total community, just enough parks and just enough schools, other than the other industrial uses. They just can't do it all. It's just too far out, Jim, Bren replied. Well, a few years later, after Don decided that nobody wants to, 
two people came out and built Dean Holmes and one friend of Don's. So it was this moment where things would change the course of Don Bren's career. Bren didn't want to build on the land yet and was fine with finding other builders to build on homes on parts he did not care about. But when he pitched the land to sell outside to other people, nobody seemed to want to actually develop on the land. This was the first bad sign for Brent. He ended up trying to see who was out there to build homes and contacted a consultant named John Martin to do a study to see what can be built on their 10,000 acres of land and to help find people who could build on it. Martin retells this in his own oral history saying, Don Bren said, I need a market study. Would you do that for me? I had exposure to all the large builders in Orange County. So by the time I did the study for Donald Bren and the Mission Viejo company, I probably had about 10 of them under my belt. And so I really understood what the dynamics were and the moving patterns in Orange County as it would relate to a community developer jumping 12 to 15 miles over open space because Mission Viejo in those days there really wasn't much going on down there. And the only reason it had been enabled was the I-5 freeway had been punched through by that time. And that was the reason that the O'Neill family wanted to get into the development business and thought there might be an opportunity. I had an opportunity to do a market study for the Mission Viejo company and Donald Bren. At the same time, I'm in the office with the Dean brothers while they're creating this garden kitchen and they had opened in 1964 in the Diamond Bar area and had literally transformed the industry in that period of time because this is a cyclical business. He's talking about home building. He continues on saying, in 1963, Southern California had more permits issued than any time in their history. There were almost 200,000 permits that were issued in the Southern California area, if I remember correctly, and that had plummeted to about 50,000 units in 64 and in 65. But here are the Dean brothers opening up a project in Diamond Bar in the San Gabriel Valley, and they ended up selling twice as fast, believe it or not, as eight builders combined in the same market area. Based on this one bold idea, which was the garden kitchens. So I'm not sure if it was Sandy Goodkin that said to Donald Bren, if you're going to open up a new community down here, you really need the Dean brothers in your community. And Bren being as wise as he is, I mean, he could certainly see the benefit of having a builder that was selling homes quickly if he was going to do something that would cause the Mission Viejo to enter the market and make an impact immediately, which is exactly what happened. Bren seeks out the home builders called the Dean Brothers, which we just mentioned through John Martin, and sees their success throughout Southern California in building homes people wanted to live in. They became the first home builders to work on the land in Mission Viejo, and this is when he notices the simple innovation they had to dominating the home building market, the Garden Kitchen. The Garden Kitchen was a concept that the Dean Brothers saw at a convention in Miami where they took the concept from a retail business of having a sliding window by the counter of a kitchen to building their home so they could be connected to the outdoor aspects of the house as much as the indoor aspects. The best way I could describe it by looking at the picture of it right now is think of it as like a drive through window, but it has like a little table that's connected to it outside. And that was the big innovation. It connected the indoor portion of the kitchen to the outdoor portion. So you could eat outside on this little bar-like sur surface with windows that had slid open that you could connect to from the kitchen. This was the big thing that changed everything in the home building market at that time. So it really did change the game. 
So much so that when Dean Homes announced that they're building homes in Mission Viejo, they had only 726 homes to sell. And you know how many people would show up? 10,000 people. So to make the process fair, they did a live raffle where of those 10,000 people, 726 were chosen and had to put down a down payment as soon as they won. Bren is astonished. He sees all of this and he wonders why is he even in the community planning business anymore? The Dean brothers bought the land and built these new homes and got to reap a big return relatively quickly while Bren was the one who would sell this land in order to develop the city. Again, Bren was a very ambitious man. He was a dreamer. And his high ambitions and pace to build something big did not match the mold of building a community where it was slow, you had to get permits to build each thing, and most of the time he actually ended up spending was on actually planning things on the maps and not building things. So Bren seeing the gardening kitchen concept and then the Dean brothers successfully selling it out reminds me of the same moment Steve Jobs had when visiting Xerox Park. He noticed the enormity of the situation. However, the Dean brothers knew that they were onto something and they had been selling this concept all around Southern California. Bren, however, knew that he had to seize this opportunity and would call on John Martin again to see how he could get into home building. Martin explains this in, in the same oral history saying, So one day Bren called me into his office and says, John, I've got to get into this home building business here because I can't make any money selling lots to the Dean brothers. What should I build? So having done at least a year's worth of market research in Orange County, Los Angeles County, San Diego County in particular, what I had identified was the five best-selling floor plans by the best builders in Southern California. What I did is, having identified that these were the best-selling floor plans, I said to Donald Bren, this is where you ought to start your design process here, with something that is known, is successful in the marketplace, and that's where you should start. He had already retained an architect, Ed Malone, out of Nagel and Malone out of San Diego, and so one day the three of us met. Malone brought in his recommended floor plans which to me didn't make any market sense, and I laid out my five prototypes here. Bren accepted them all, and that became the genesis. Now, I can't draw anything, and Malone was a really very creative architect that had traveled a lot in Europe and understood the early California and the adaptation of the mission influence and Spanish colonial revival. I mean, he was really an artist and an effective architect, so combined with Donald Bren, and the right prototypes to start the design process, out came La Paz Homes. La Paz Homes enters the market, and lo and behold, within that year, Dean Homes and La Paz Homes are the two fastest-selling projects in the entire Orange County market, and probably two of the most popular and best-selling projects in all of Southern California. But literally what that did is that put Mission Viejo on the map. So Bren really sees what makes a great community and it had less to do with the actual amenities that were offered and more to do with the actual homes. Bren quickly innovates and uses his meticulous skill to design the La Paz home concept where it was a distinct Spanish-inspired home that paid homage to early California. The architect that Bren brings on board to make this happen was Ed Malone and he did this because he knew Ed had experience in building Spanish architecture because he actually studied architecture in Spain to get his degree. So after selling his home successfully in Mission Viejo, Bren sees that the real opportunity is home building. 
he starts competing on projects against the Dean brothers and follows them to different communities to build his Spanish homes. He sold his share in the Mission Viejo company back to the O'Neills and then went on a building spree going from Mission Viejo to Valencia to Westlake Village and to other parts of Southern California to build homes. The exponential growth of the home building business gets the attention of big conglomerates and Occidental Petroleum ends up buying Dean homes to build homes for them while International Paper pays Donald Brent $31 million back in the late 60s for his business. So by this point, Bren has already made it. But obviously, this would not be the end of his story. Just for context, $31 million in the late 60s is estimated around $250 million today. So this wasn't just some small acquisition. This really did make Bren one of the richest people in the United States at this time. So now before we move on with what happens next, I want us to take a little detour and see how another ranch in the area was faring during this time. Let's talk about the Irvine Ranch. The Irvine Ranch started very similarly to the Mission Viejo Ranch. The patriarch, James Irvine, bought the ranch in 1864, which included 110,000 acres of land that stretched 22 miles from the Pacific Ocean to the Santa Ana River. James Irvine would use the ranch to grow crops and over time would pass it over to his son, James Irvine II, known as J.I., the ranch was very successful and it was one of the biggest growers of oranges and lima beans in the state. Just like with the O'Neills, when it was World War II, however, the U.S. government identified land on the Irvine Ranch and would end up building an airfield called the Air Station El Toro. The U.S. government took about 4% of his ranch in order to build this base out. J.I. had planned on grooming his son, James Irvine III, or otherwise known as Jace, but his plans had changed after Jace tragically passed away from tuberculosis. With nobody in mind to give the ranch off to, he created the foundation as a means to have other professionals to take care of it, while giving most of the money made from the ranch away to charity, with small portions of the profits would be left for Jace's kid, Joan Irvine. After J.I. died, the foundation that controlled the ranch and his businesses in agriculture continued to flourish. With the backdrop of World War II, many Americans moved to California when enlisting in the military, and the population exploded from 130,000 people in 1940 to 700,000 people by 1960. This huge population growth caused many of the ranches near them to get into home building to meet the demand of the people who want to live there. And with new infrastructure projects like the 5 Freeway being built through to Orange County, the Irvine Company knew it needed to change with the times. Many people at this time tried to buy the ranch in order to build, but they would end up rejecting offers from all over the country so that they could try to build on their ranch themselves. The person they had hired to lead the charge was a young architect named Ray Watson. This name might sound familiar from our previous episodes because yes, that is the same Watson who would help Richard Rainwater invest into Disney by approving the purchase of Arvida from him. After successfully working at a small architecture firm, one of his mentors would help send him an opportunity to work with the Irvine Foundation to build their ranch into a community. Watson jumped at the opportunity. Just like Brand with Mission Viejo, Watson knew he needed a team of people who had the experience in undertaking such a big project. He recruited engineers and other planners to help with the task. The story is very similar to Brand's with Mission Viejo, because even though these people were supposed to be more experienced, they still knew that this was something groundbreaking that they were doing. 
Watson only hired people that were willing to learn. There was no known big player doing this in Southern California at the time. So each ranch who undertook this project was essentially learning on the job. This was the space race of real estate. Watson would lead the charge in helping transition the ranch from their biggest moneymaker in agriculture to becoming a community and would have to do so while finding unique ways to not pay taxes. J.I. was not a huge fan of paying taxes, and some of the people he'd put on his board helped him find loopholes to exploit so he wouldn't pay. That identity stayed true, so a lot of their agricultural operations also worked because they were not paying taxes from different rules they exploited. To figure out how to make way for developing an actual community in a way that proved to be more economically viable than ranching, famous architect William Pereira proposed to build a new campus of the University of California onto the ranch. You would think that the foundation would accept this deal as a no-brainer, but it was actually a lot more contentious. The UC wanted to get 10,000 acres to build the campus so it could accommodate around 100,000 people. The president of the foundation at the time quickly rejected the proposal and said, I won't give a five-cent piece to the richest university in the world. While the crew that J.I. had recruited to run the foundation were in agreement to not sell any land to build the UC campus, J.I.'s granddaughter, Joan Irvine, would be the driving force to willing it into existence. Joan Irvine always had problems with the foundation. After seeing how much money was coming in, while she would get dividends of millions of dollars, she noticed that most of the money would get donated, which made sense because that's what J.I. wanted. But Joan did not agree with it. She viewed most of the moves the foundation did was to preserve the ranch's business interests to continue donating versus actually running the ranch as a real business that can take advantage of the land to make it more valuable by building a real community. Whether it was her greed to make more money or her pride of being in Irvine, she took up the reins of the ranch and tried every which way to make changes. When she heard that the foundation was against building a campus for the UC, she went on the offensive. She met with a lawyer that was trying to help get the UC land for the campus. They agreed that she would do advocacy in the public to get the campus created. They'd set up many big fundraising events for a new organization that supported the campus called Friends of the University of California in Orange County. This worked. Her fighting with the board both privately and publicly allowed them to vote unanimously to sell land to the University of California for $1. The reason they did this was to dodge paying taxes on gifting the land. They would sell around a total of 1,000 acres in order to build the UC campus, and this would set off the first big inflection point into turning this ranch into an actual community. A funny little tidbit that went into the UC campus being built, where it currently is, was that the UC actually wanted to have the campus closer to the ocean, but the foundation had already sold that land to a developer who wanted to build a cemetery instead. While the foundation tried to renegotiate the deal, the developer quickly tried to stop that from happening by offering to bury people in the piece of land for free. He ended up burying six corpses and would kill the deal, forcing the UC Irvine to be built more inland. The head of the UC system at the time said about the matter, we wanted it, and then we decided we couldn't fight the dead. <laughs> so the next thing, so now going back into the story, the next thing needed to make the Irvine Ranch a viable community was water and sewage. While the ranch had a lot of water wells built to support their farming operations, supporting a whole community of people needed a lot more water to flow throughout the tens of thousands of acres to support them. One of the engineers that worked on the Irvine Ranch would set out to create the Irvine Ranch Water District. 
This new water district was created so they could pitch to the state to get their own exclusive water rights for their ranch that could cover all the acreage they owned rather than getting it split up by being part of a bigger water district. This would pave the way for the ranch to be one of the most exclusive parts of Orange County to get their own water line, and with the help of other board members from the ranch and the UC, they would even change the law so that the California Water District would provide sewage services as well. This allowed the UC Irvine to open up its campus in 1965. While it seemed that everything was running smoothly, between 1960 and 1977, Ray Watson had to deal with a whole bunch of different problems with getting the community up and running. Let me just list off some of the problems. One problem was the city of Santa Ana was trying to annex land from the ranch to build a freeway to lead to one of their senior living facilities. Another problem was getting more funding to build more housing around the campus, which for some reason at the time, the UC was actually against. Watson successfully stopped the annexation of the land from Santa Ana and would then apply to have part of the ranch get incorporated as a city. Watson was trying all he can to turn this ranch into a community, but Joan Irvine, the same woman that opposed the foundation to getting the UC campus, would oppose Watson's newest idea of incorporating it as a city because, again, she felt that it would ruin the value of her share in the ranch. She wanted to stop this effort so that she could get control of the ranch in order for her to create her own boundaries while she could keep the rest of the land for herself. The public intervened and agreed with Watson, and the city ended up being incorporated on the land that the foundation thought would be right. This would usher the foundation Watson needed to create a master-planned community so that the whole ranch can be built as a place for people to live and work. Everything was finally going to plan, and they would start working on that plan to build different areas like the Newport Center and other residential developments throughout the ranch. Watson became president and was now in the seat to enact these changes, but only four years after his appointment, he would ultimately leave. Dealing with similar issues that we face today, like making affordable housing, finding ways to work with different city government officials to build on land that was deemed important for the environment, for example, and having contentious issues within the board to create parts of the community made his dream into a nightmare. But this wouldn't be the reason why he would leave. In 1969, Congress passed the Tax Reform Act of 1969. It was proposed after how different foundations were spending their money and getting away with owning private companies to continue the foundation and spending freely without the government getting any cut of it through taxes. The Irvine Foundation was a great example of this. While it was technically in a foundation and the proceeds were mostly donated, this foundation would be more similar to the NFL than a cancer research institute, for example. The donations would go to many of the causes that the board members were a part of, how to make money for themselves. This was part of the reason why Joan Irvine thought that she was being treated unfairly, which I tend to agree with. But since it was run as a foundation for the benefit of the board members, they figured it would be best to preserve the business interests that the ranch would provide them using the excess cash to fund themselves in other matters. When the act went into law, it prohibited foundations from owning 20% of any corporation the Irvine Foundation owned over 50% of the Irvine Company, which was the owner of the whole ranch. Joan Irvine used this information to finally find a way to dissolve the board and allow her to get more ownership of the ranch. Joan herself would spend six years lobbying for this bill just for this purpose. Joan tried to find any way to gain control after the board tried to sell the ranch without her approval to another investor who wanted to develop on it. 
This story rings true for a lot of the other ranch owners and it makes me realize why the O'Neill family felt cheated when the same exact thing was happening to them. She would bring up to the government that the Irvine Foundation Board was assessing the value of the ranch incorrectly and was committing fraud. Joan made the case that they were not operating the business the ranch owned correctly either, making her lose money as a shareholder. Her arguments proved successful enough in a lawsuit where the LA Superior Court ruled that the foundation had to sell its interest in the ranch. The ranch was held in a separate entity called the Irvine Company while the foundation owned shares in it. While she got what she ultimately wanted, the board acted fast and tried to get the company sold before she could put up a bid to take control of it herself. The chairman of the board for the Irvine Foundation at this point was a businessman named John Flower. He tried to buy the ranch himself and hired Benjamin Lambert of Eastville to evaluate the true value of the property. By 1974, Flower instead would pass the deal along to his acquaintance, Raleigh Warner Jr. of Mobile Corporation, where he sent in a deal to buy the ranch for $23.50 a share. This was about to be approved until Joan Irvine, who said in her own words that, In 1974, my attorney, Mr. James Brown, happened to talk with another attorney at a social gathering who remarked that he was representing a client who was merging with the Irvine company. She said that they made a deal to benefit themselves again, and when Flower couldn't benefit himself, he would make a deal happen for a friend. Joan stopped this effort in court and got to mount a defense that would take them into court against each other for years until late 1976. This will now set the stage to where Brand would make his seminal deal. But his expertise in home building in the region and his own previous deal of getting to build a community early on in his career wasn't enough. He was actually almost about to miss out. This brings us to how Brand got the deal, which I think is chock full of great lessons learned as investors. So let's get into it. Al Taubman was a rainmaker worth studying in his own right. He successfully became a self-made billionaire in real estate from developing shopping centers all around the United States. In 1976, he got a call from Charles Allen Jr. from Allen Co. to check out the Irvine Ranch. Allen had co-invested with Taubman before and designated him as one of his real estate guys that he likes to deal with. Allen set Taubman to meet with Joan Irvine through his friend John Gottlieb. Taubin liked what he saw from Joan and got his own deal guy, Robert Shout, to go and assess the deal if it was viable and to raise money in order to purchase the ranch. To do this required a lot of digging. The Irvine company was private and did not have to file 10Ks like public companies did, deeming it very hard to analyze. But Shout creatively figured out that he could analyze the company through the credit line Aetna had with the Irvine company in the past. He had a contact at Aetna and got access to all the loans the company got from Aetna to make their developments. He went through the files for four days straight and realized that the company was severely undervalued and had room to maximize profits just by raising prices of its leases to market level. Not only this, he realized many of the developments they owned had little debt and the infrastructure was already built up to handle more development without any real setbacks from the local governments. In a lot of ways, this was a home run that they knew the true value more than all the other people bidding against them. We already know that mobile oil was in the bidding, and Shout knew this too, so he had to act fast. Another company called Cadillac Fairview also joined the bidding war. Cadillac Fairview was a Canadian real estate firm that already owned 16,000 apartments, 35 shopping centers, and 10 million square feet of office space. They were looking to expand into the United States, and the Irvine company proved to be the perfect opportunity. Cadillac Fairview bid $265 million, and the foundation was about to accept until Mobile then countered 
at $273.5 million. Taubman then made his first bid between him and Allen and put in a bid for $285.6 million, where $225 million was cash and the rest was loans. Stocksell's book describes this moment perfectly like a movie, and I just want to read it out for you guys. He says, The problem was timing. The bid was due at the Orange County Courthouse at 3 p.m. Taubman had called shortly that afternoon. An official form required to enter the bid document was only available at Howard Friedman's law office in downtown Los Angeles. Shout was prepared. He had a helicopter waiting at Orange County Airport. A series of events worthy of a Keystone Cops movie began with Shout and an associate climbing into the chopper and making a beeline for downtown. However, the pilot and Shout had neglected to find a place to land. They spotted a landing spot at the top of a building a few blocks south of downtown proper. Alighting, they were met by a group of armed guards there to protect the Occidental Petroleum building owner Armand Hammer. A conversation ensued and money changed hands. Shout and the pilot remained on the roof while his associates went on foot to Friedman's office and grabbed the paperwork. Now it was a race to Orange County. With nowhere to land in Santa Ana, the pilot recalled a friend who owned a Porsche dealership in Anaheim with a large parking lot where the chopper could safely descend. He'd even have a car waiting, the pilot assured Shout. Once on the ground, the friend and promised car were missing. With the deadline looming, Shout climbed over a six-foot fence and located a car on the lot with the keys in the ignition. I had no idea where to go, but then I saw Jones standing in the doorway of a courtroom. Shout delivered the highest bid submitted to the court that day with moments to spare. That just shows the thin margins to making a big deal like this. Between the three bidders, Taubman was the least equipped to go against these big corporations who had deep pockets. But sensing the value of the company, he didn't give up and had Joan Irvine join the group promising her to keep her share in the company in the new group. Taubman then attracted his friends from Detroit to help pitch into the bid, knowing that he needed more money. He got Max Fisher, Henry Ford II, and Milton Petrie to join the group as well. But he still needed more money. Fisher helped bring in Howard Margulius into the bid, who was also beneficial from his knowledge as a businessman who owned farms in Palm Springs. To help seal the deal, he sought institutional partners to help structure the deal and to give a loan. Shout went to New York to find an institutional partner, and when he got rejected flat out by the teacher's insurance company, Benjamin Lambert, the same man who looked at the deal for John Floor, contacted Shout to assess the deal with him. Lambert had already done his analysis for Floor, deeming the property way overvalued than the price they're about to pay. But after Shout showed him the analysis he made from the data he had from Aetna, Lambert agreed with Shout and joined the bid as part of Eastville. And as Shout recalls in Stocksville's book, through some stroke of luck, Donald Bren happened to call Lambert while they were having that same meeting. Bren heard the analysis Shout gave and agreed with him and told him that he wanted to buy the ranch personally, but did not have the means anymore and needed a partner. Bren wanted to join their deal. Lambert knew Bren and suggested to Shout that he join the deal, but Taubman and the rest of the group had no idea who Bren was. Shout stuck his neck out for Bren, and it says in Stocksville's book, saying, Shout called Taubman and told him, I found our guy. Who is it? Taubman asked. Donald Bren, Shout said. Why? was Taubman's retort. Because, Al, you and I look like a couple of gangsters from Detroit. This guy looks like he came from Hollywood. Bren had told Shout that he had $100 million lined up and would be able to get more financial commitments to win the deal. Shout told this to Taubman, and Taubman finally agreed to include him. How much of the deal did Bren get? 
the lion's share. It says in the book, Taubman had Shao offer him 35% of the deal, and Shao mentioned to Bren in the meeting room where he said to Bren, shake my hand. I'm going to make you one of the richest people on the planet. Bren tried every which way to win the deal and even tried to do a smear campaign against Mobile Corp to get them to back out. But that didn't stop them. Taubman's group and Mobile would go back and forth for days raising their bids. Mobile gave their last bid at $336.6 million for the company. Taubman outbid Mobile and got the help from different big banks like Wells Fargo and Chase to put the highest offer of $337.4 million. Taubman's group paid for the company with $240 million in debt raised from the banks and then got $75 million in subordinated debt to pay some of it as well. When it was all said and done, the group only had to shell out $20 million to get their ranch. When the deal was about to be signed, it hit a couple of snags with Bren having problems investing because International Paper tried to use their acquisition of his home building company into getting some of the equity into the deal and with Taubman getting cold feet. Charlie Allen helped Taubman get back into the deal and everything was signed and done by 1977. When the deal was done, Bren had 35% of the equity while the second highest person was Taubman who only had 15%. And this would also be the reason why Watson left the company. He was dealing with problems at all angles and now that the new ownership group came in, he viewed them as businessmen that did not necessarily have in mind to continue building out the master plan that Watson worked so hard to bring into fruition. He'd leave in 1977, and Taubman took the reins. And honestly, Watson was right. Taubman did not really care about the master plan anymore, and while Brent did have the biggest share of the company, it was Taubman's deal with the group agreeing he should be in charge. Taubman sold different parcels of land to pay off the debt, and they actually got to go ahead of schedule and paid off all the debt they owned within 15 months of making the investment. For the ensuing six years, Taubman hired Peter Kremer to take Watson's position in building up the ranch. Kremer's job was to enact changes that Shout had identified, like raising the rents the ranch had previously that was below market price to the market price. But this caused problems for the tenants, and they'd take the opportunity to publicly bash Taubman and the new owners of the Irvine Company for their practices. Joe and Irvine continued to cause problems as well and sued the partners for continuing to strengthen their infrastructure by building a new water line. And instead of actually continuing to build, Taubman had Kremer sell more parcels of land to other developers to make their own office buildings. Taubman was in charge of managing Fashion Island, which was a shopping mall that was similar to the malls he operated around the country. And when he tried to raise rents, it had caused similar issues. Residential tenants had enough and formed an organization called the Committee of 4000, and took to the media to shine a light on the things Taubman's ownership group was doing. They'd hold rallies and ended up winning public support all around the ranch. This would all come to a head when they finally sued the Irvine company for raising their rents. While Taubman and Kremer did not seem too concerned, Bren, as the guy with the biggest share, was watching a planned community break down before his eyes. In 1982, Bren and his associate from the Mission Viejo days, Gary Hunt, started to meet with people in the community on their own to try to see if they could help resolve the issues. Bren convinced the board to relieve Kremer of his duties and convinced the board to make Thomas Nielsen to be the next president of the company. Taubman knew that the public was against him and more and more newspaper articles would come out against the ownership group showing how terrible they were as owners. Bren made the drive out to Irvine each week figuring out ways to solve the problems with the communities and because he was the biggest shareholder, he had the board put him as co-chairman where he now had more control. 
Later on in the year, Brand offered to buy out the rest of the ownership group where they accepted his offer of $516 million. The writing was on the wall for a while, and Tobman was too busy managing his other companies back in Detroit, so he would accept this offer and the company was sold to Brent. Right away, Brent went back to reinstating the plans of developing the whole project as originally planned by Watson. He even brought Watson back on the board to help advise Nielsen to continue developing. Brent quickly went about solving the issues with the committee of 4000 and offered a new low price plan that was affordable with a 30-year mortgage that spread out for them to pay off their houses as well. Brent worked with the community and ended up getting much of the support he needed to continue his developments. He set his sights on redeveloping and became the first owner of the Irvine Ranch since J.I. to have an office in the ranch. He saw the opportunity and started to build office buildings and hotels in the 80s. The name of his new business park would be called the Irvine Spectrum. Brent split the company to focus on different segments of development and started to make way for more office buildings, hotels, and apartments. He rebuilt Fashion Island to be even bigger after seeing how the South Coast Plaza started taking business away from his mall. He went back to his days as a home builder and focused on creating the whole community into a detailed and beautiful project. He would do this for the next 40 years, and now in the year of 2024, here's where he ended up. The Irvine Company now owns 95 million square feet of investment properties, which includes 40 million square feet of office space and 484 high-rise, mid-rise, and low-rise buildings, 8.4 million square feet of retail space, in 41 regional and neighborhood centers, and over 100 apartment complexes totaling 44,000 units, three hotels, three golf courses, and five marinas. This is all under the same piece of land that he would buy in 1983. And the craziest part in all of this is now Bren is in his 90s, and he still couldn't develop all the land he owns. There is still 20% of the ranch remaining that is still being planned to develop new communities within all the open acres he still owns. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the Donald Bren investment story. Now, let's analyze what actually made this such a good deal and how Donald Bren identified it. Why was the Irvine opportunity so good? Most of it had to do with the population growth that started in the 40s. And a lot of this had to do with World War II and the military's need in developing bases throughout California. This brought a huge influx of people who enlisted into the military to live in areas of Southern California where the bases were built. The areas that had enough land to build such huge bases, like Camp Pendleton, were in Orange County. So while it was unfortunate for the military to enact laws to forcefully take parts of ranches from families like the Irvines and the O'Neills, they benefited immensely from the demand these bases created in people wanting to stay and live in SoCal. Another externality from the war was Eisenhower's discovery of the Autobahn when he was a head general against the Germans. He introduced the Highway Infrastructure Bill called the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956. Because of this bill, the 5 Freeway was introduced and built in the early 60s. This freeway is what connected much of Los Angeles to San Diego and the areas in between which were cities in Orange County. Because of this, people were able to live outside of Los Angeles or San Diego for the first time and can affordably own a brand new home while commuting to work in either big city. Many of the developers who would take on these early projects made track housing to fulfill the demand, but in the early 60s, this commoditized the housing model 
And although they figured they could make cheaply made homes to sell to people who want to live around Southern California, this simply didn't work. These companies were not specialized in home building because building homes at this scale was an emerging business. So many who took on these jobs were just normal construction companies who built projects for the government like dams and other government projects. But with many developments now being underway, people did not necessarily want a cheap product. They can pick and choose where they wanted to live. And since many of these areas were not developed as communities anyway, the way they picked where they wanted to live was primarily driven on the types of homes that were sold. Owners of ranches planned communities that would serve a new vision of suburban living and did not want to commoditize their land, which wouldn't make it as profitable if they were to build out a nice city for people to live in. That was why Watson was hired, and that is why he brought on the renowned architect, William Pereira, to bring in the UC system and build the campus. This model was already done before with UCLA. The Jans family who owned that area of Westwood attracted the UC to build out their second campus in the state there. Right after they opened up the campus, the Jans family would build out much of Westwood to be a luxurious place with mansions all around campus, and that is one of the reasons why it is still so expensive today. The UC, however, did not want Irvine to be like UCLA because many of the students and professors were priced out of living in that area because of the Jans family, so they worked with Watson to make the area with a more affordable housing. This was some of that same housing that caused problems from Taubman and the rest of the owners when they tried to raise the prices. So with the plan in mind to produce a high-quality community anchored by a UC campus, this became an attractive place to live for new SoCal residents. But as we saw in the story, this took a ton of time. Watson had to slowly build out the plan while he was dealing with a board that did not really care to develop and more and more outside influences who wanted to either take or stop projects, which we all now know. But the intent to go after a well-crafted community and to have the patience to invest in the infrastructure and stay disciplined ultimately became the gift that Bren would inherit. With its own water plant and with many thousands of acres of flatland to build on, it became one of the only places that was not already all built out due to short-term financial interests of other owners of ranches. So now they could actually build a model community. Bren understood this. So now let's talk about what Bren saw. Bren was in the Marines, and he was stationed in Camp Pendleton. He knew the area well, and was part of the new migration of people to Southern California. He saw the writing on the wall and chose to first develop a few homes in Newport Beach. When community development started to come about, Bren was actually a visionary and wanted to be part of this new opportunity. But he knew he was not skilled enough or experienced enough to actually go for it. But he did it anyway. The pivotal moment of his career, without a doubt, was convincing the O'Neill family to have him turn their ranch into a planned community. The family valued his inexperience and because he was learning on the job, they viewed it as a way for them all to learn with him being the one to take the true risk because he was the one that was buying it off of them at this point so they would at least make some money. This would be Brent's deal before the deal like Rainwater did with his HCA investment for example. He learned the difficulty of developing a city. He wanted to move fast but between making maps to plan out different parts of the city, dealing with regulators to make sure they were doing things right and having the financial means of building out the parts he wanted it took a lot of time and effort before Brand could see what he wanted out of building this area. 
On top of all of that, Mission Viejo was a lot smaller than Irvine and a lot more hilly than Irvine, which proved to be even more difficult for building and attracting people to live there. But his experience with the Mission Viejo company ultimately allowed him to see what actually brought people to these new communities, and that was well-built homes. Seeing the Dean brothers introduce a garden kitchen and a new home that was higher quality which brought so many people to the city just to be able to live in one of them was an eye-opening experience that allowed Bren to make his first big fortune. He produced his own high-end home that brought back the early California architecture to a new Spanish style that would sell out at the same levels as his competitors at Dean Homes. So while Ray Watson was building out the city of Irvine with the infrastructure and massive plan he built out, Bren now had experience as both a home builder who attracted people to cities and as a community planner when he worked early on with the Mission Viejo company. He knew what it would take to maximize the opportunity that presented itself in Irvine. He uniquely was the perfect person to own the ranch. He had the skills to make beautiful homes himself, and he had experience working with Mission Viejo to understand how to get big projects passed. But a lot of the heavy work was already done for him with the water district already being built and the UC campus opened in Irvine. It was just mismanaged. So when the ranch came for sale, he knew it would be severely undervalued and quickly became the biggest owner because of how much he believed in its potential. He knew this was very undervalued. He had the experience to know and he had the plan to make it work out. And the plan was actually already laid out for him. This is a lot like Dennis Washington's deal with the copper mine. Frank Gardner had the plan set out and Dennis Washington just had to follow it. Same thing. Ray Watson had the plan already set in motion. Campus is there. Water district is built. All Bren needed to do was follow the plan and use his own home building company to make it happen. That's all it needed. And so he just wanted to take the opportunity and it ultimately made him a billionaire. This is like how other big investors we learned about were too. If you have an edge, you go all out. This was Donald Bren's fat pitch. That's why he wanted to invest so heavily into it. And he certainly swung at it. He realized that they weren't operating at its full potential. And this was when he would buy out the rest of the group. And now he became the richest real estate investor in the United States worth $18 billion. Before we conclude, let's talk about some things we can learn from this single deal. Number one, learning on the job. One thing that stuck out to me during this whole case study was how Bren found ways to be in big deals against giant institutions. He was not afraid of bidding for deals, even though he essentially had no experience. This reminds me of the director, James Cameron. My friend David Senra of the Founders Podcast has a great episode about him if you want to learn more. But Cameron was just like Bren, where he skipped straight to the end and did not work his way up as a director. He didn't really even go to college. So his advice to people in one of those interviews on YouTube, I'll link in the show notes, when people want to be a director, his advice to them was, be a director. And what he meant by that was to start doing things as a director would right away. So James Cameron started directing his own projects, and because of this, he got a job as a director of commercials at a very young age, and now he's a world-famous director of Avatar and Terminator and a whole bunch of big movies. Bren essentially did the same thing. He wanted to build communities, so guess what? He was now a community builder. He went for it. And if he had to work his way up, which is the most important part of all of this, he would have lost out on the best real estate deal of all time. So just because he was young, he didn't let that be an excuse for not going in on this deal. 
And number two, being opportunistic. This is something that will be a common theme on all of our episodes, but Bren was really adept at seizing opportunities when they presented themselves. He did not wait around, and he saw that communities were being developed all around Southern California. So he took the chance at developing the Mission Viejo company. And then when the Dean brothers were out selling homes all over SoCal, he saw it as a better business and a new way to fulfill his dream of being a community developer and quickly switched to doing that business instead. Then when the Irvine company was up for sale, he switched back into being a community developer again because he knew how much better of an opportunity that was. He now was fully equipped to build out the ranch without any outside influences. Later on in Brent's career, he would dip his toes into doing REITs in the 90s, and wherever a great opportunity was presented, Bren took it. And number three, getting into big deals. This is something that has less to do with Bren and more to do with Tobman's group, but it just goes to show how many great deals of the past were presented to only a few people. Bren got into the deal last minute after hearing about the bidding war publicly between Tobman and Mobile Oil. But somehow, Charlie Allen, all the way in New York, had the network to find out about this deal to actually pursue it. It was through Charlie Allen that he told Tobin about this deal. I think this is an important lesson that a lot of great investing is mostly great networking. So think about how you can access these deals as much as how you analyze the deals. And with this, we will end our story of Rainmakers on Donald Bren. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please subscribe and review. In the next episode, we will learn the methods of Jack Kent Cook to see how he transformed his ownership of a few radio stations into being a multi-billionaire owner of the Lakers and the Washington Redskins. See you guys next time.